All right, so we're going to get started. Um, we left off on the top of page 26. As I mentioned last week, we're going to look at prophecies about Jesus. We looked at in our last lesson, Genesis chapter 3, the first prophecy of Jesus, right? Immediately after the fall into sin, this is what God says, right? God makes this promise that he is going to send an offspring or a descendant of Eve who is going to crush the serpent's head, right? And, and, and I, I, I put that passage there, and then I put my own translation next to it. Because without the context of the rest of the Bible, it's a very challenging passage to understand. But, of course, we see this um, fulfilled in the New Testament um, with a passage that says the reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the devil's work, right? That's why he came, was to crush the devil's head. Um, and so we kind of use that as a leaping off point to say here was the first pro prophecy, the first promise of Jesus. But now we're going to go through kind of the rest of the Old Testament, and we're going to pick up kind of more and more of those. And as we make our way through the Old Testament, the picture of who this Messiah is and what he will look like and what he will do and even where and how he will be born are all going to be prophesied in the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to take a look at. And the first one that we have there um, is uh, about 2000 BC, as I said, this is uh, Genesis chapter 12. And this is God saying to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And I think this is kind of another one of those portions of the Bible where um, we really see Christians and Judaism kind of begin to, to go on different paths a little bit. If, if you would ask, um, you know, um, Jewish people kind of who's the main character of the Old Testament, who's the most important figure of the Old Testament, I've asked a number of them. And more times than not, the answer I get back is Moses. Moses is the lawgiver. Right, he, He's the one who talks to God face to face, who gets the, the, the covenant from God written in stone. Um, he's the guy. And as Christians, we would say the main figure in the Old Testament, other than Jesus, um, the main figure in the Old Testament is not Moses, but Abraham. And the reason is because that's what the Apostle Paul tells us. And the Apostle Paul comes back to Abraham again and again in Romans and Galatians and says, Abraham is your father. You and I are true Israelites. Why? Not because we're connected to him by, by blood or by heritage, but because we share the same faith. Abraham believed the promise and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? And here's the promise. Here's the promise. God says to Abraham that, that, that he and his descendants are going to be a blessing for all people, not just his descendants, not just the Israelites, but all people. So how is it that Abraham's family is going to be a, a blessing for all people? It isn't just going to be by maintaining good relations between the United States of America and Israel. It's so much more than that, right? Um, and so on the right-hand side, Again, kind of knowing the context and knowing what's coming in the New Testament, we know what that promise is now, right? Um, Abraham was not only the father of the nation of Israel, but the promised Savior um, would be one of his descendants. Through this Savior, what? How would you finish that using the, the words of Genesis 12? Through this Savior, what? All people on earth would be blessed, right? Um, 
And so here is the key, right? So again, it's sort of like, okay, Genesis 3, we've got this picture of a future descendant who's going to be a serpent crusher. Okay, that's a cool picture, but what does it mean? And now we've got, okay, this descendant of Abraham is going to be so great. He's going to be a blessing for all people. Okay, that's nice too, but what does that mean? We're, we're, we're just getting more and more pieces of the puzzle, right, as we kind of add to this. Um, so that would kind of be the, the first one. Moving on, um, Exodus chapter 12. So now we have, does somebody have a question? Okay, all right. Um, Exodus chapter 12. So now we're moving ahead to, to Moses, right? So we're moving ahead to about five, our 1500 BC. Um, and this is the, the, the Exodus, right? This is the first Passover celebration. Um, and this is where we really kind of start to see um, the connections to, to what is coming um, in Jesus. Here, here are the instructions. The Lord gave Moses the following instructions for Israel's Passover celebration. He said, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They are, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. It's kind of a little bit of a Cliff Notes version. Um, but there's a lot going on there, right? So you remember the 10 plagues, right? Um, that Moses goes and he tells Pharaoh, let God's people go. And he says, no. And we go through the water into blood and we go to the frogs and the darkness and the hail and the flies and, and all of those things. <clears throat> and none of them convince Pharaoh to, to let the Israelites go. And the Lord says, I've got one more and, and he will. Right, and, and it's the, the, the death of the firstborn. And, and yet God says, here is how you are going to be spared from this plague. He says, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to take it into your home and treat it like a pet for a, a couple of days and then you're gonna kill it. And I can't even imagine what that must have been like as a father with children. Uh, next, next week, we're, we're going to pick up a, a new puppy for our family. I got three kids, uh, seven, four, and, and two. Um, and I'm just kind of envisioning, like, you bring that puppy into your house for, like, two weeks. And then you're like, okay, here's why we got the puppy. Now we have to kill it. And it's like, what? <sighs> That's heavy stuff, right? Um, to, to teach your kids that and to say that this is the cost. This is the seriousness of our rebellion and our rejection. This is the cost of our deliverance from our enemies. This is what it takes. It takes the shedding of blood, but here is the grace of God. 
It's not the father's blood. It's not the children's blood. It's an animal. God is willing to allow a substitute. And so as dramatic and I think is probably terrifying as that must have been, right? After the killing of that lamb, the family probably sat around the table, looked at each other and said, we're still here, right? Um, and so they, they drain the blood, they take that, they paint it over the door frames. And now here's what the Lord sees where that blood is. It's as if that blood covered the whole family, right? And if you move ahead and you know your Old Testament, this is just going to get more and more dramatic, right? As you move into the Old Testament, um, as you get to the Day of Atonement and the sacrifices, right, that, that the Israelites make as some of that blood is taken and even sprinkled on the people, um, I, I had a sermon on that a, a couple of months ago and I, 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 I didn't do it, um, but I referenced it, you know, be like me walking up and down the aisles and sprinkling blood on all of you. And I terrified a bunch of the kids. I said, all right, I'm not gonna bring that back up again. Um, it's, it's a shocking thing, right? Um, but, but here it is on the door frames. And, and this is what will be now the Passover. Death, judgment, um, despair will pass over your house because of the blood of a substitute, right? And not just any substitute, right? Um, so the Old Testament Passover, the, the, the right column there, the Old Testament Passover celebration recalled how God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, but it also predicted certain truths about the coming savior. The one-year-old male lamb without defects symbolized that. How would you finish that? Say again, sorry. Yeah, right? It, it's, it's not just going to be another Moses. It's not just going to be another lawgiver. It's not just going to be another prophet. It's not going to be a really, really good guy. It's not going to be the best guy that the Israelites can bring forward. It is going to be a perfect substitute, right? Um, and, and, and the Bible affirms this, right? That Jesus is the one who is without sin, right? Um, good. Uh, the blood on the doorposts of their homes spared them from death during the Passover. This pictured the truth that, how would you finish that? Yeah. And, and, and they are covered by the blood of the substitute, right? That, that the Lord will deliver us, but, but it always comes through blood. We just, we just finished a Bible class last night going through the book of Hebrews. And there's this really awesome passage uh, in Hebrews chapter 10 where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Whew. Right? That, yeah, that, again, that's, that's heavy stuff. But this is the picture. This is the point, right? Um, and so there's, there's just a lot going on here when we see this. And we're going to move ahead. Um, in, a, in a future lesson, we're going to get into Holy Communion. We're going to talk about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the connection between as Jesus is celebrating um, the Passover one last time with his disciples, <coughs> excuse me, and in that context, what does Jesus do? He institutes a new covenant, he institutes a new meal, and, and think of the connection. What did they do with the Passover lamb after they drained its blood? It wasn't like the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, where they took it outside the city gate and they burned it. No, what did they do with that lamb? They ate it. It was the meal. Right? It was the, 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 
the main course of the, the Passover meal. And so here it is in Holy Communion. It, it's, it's, it, it shocks us a little bit to hear Jesus say it, but it really shouldn't. Jesus, the Lamb of God, now looks at his disciples and says what? I'm not giving you just some lamb to eat. Take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. The Lamb of God. The meal to end all meals, right? So, so it's, it, it's not just, and we're going to see this with baptism and circumcision. The baptism is not just a, a New Testament version of circumcision. Holy Communion is not just a New Testament version of the Passover. It supersedes it. It's better than it, right? Um, and so we'll talk about that in the future. But there's, there's a whole lot that's going on in there, but we're going to come back to that. Good. Okay. Awesome. Great. You guys are awesome. Thanks for participating. I, this is, this is awesome. Um, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses said to the people of Israel, the Lord your God will, excuse me, raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Moses compared the work of the coming Savior to that of a prophet. And what, what was the primary purpose or role or responsibility of prophets what did they do yeah and if you're going to be intercessory if you're going to be an intercessor then what is something that you are going to be required to do yeah speak right um you you are a speaker you're a preacher um you know i i, I tell people sometimes that that used to be i think you know like when 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 my parents and grandparents were growing up, that's what I think a lot of pastors were called. They were preachers, right? And now it's almost kind of become like this derogatory name, like, oh, you're just a preacher, right? Um, or preaching is something that's viewed as like, you're long-winded, full of hot air, all that kind of stuff. And somebody, you know, people every now and then will ask me, like, do you mind if we call you preacher? And I go, no, that's like, the, that's like a great compliment. That's what I'm here to do. Um, the Lord has called me to, to, to preach, right? Not my words, not my opinions, not my thoughts. And if I start to do that, I tell people, you drag me out of here kicking and screaming. Um, but, but, but I'm here to preach God's word. Um, and so what's interesting when it comes to Jesus now, the two really key moments in his ministry, kind of the moments that sort of begin and, and in a way end his earthly ministry, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, and then the transfiguration of Jesus Right when he takes Peter, James, and John up on that mountain, and he's transfigured before them, his his clothes and his face shine like lightning. Um, in, in each of those, what does the father say? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And here it is. This is what Moses said. Right? He's coming. He's going to come from among your own people. He's going to be an Israelite just like you. But unlike you've done with me. <laughs> Moses says, y'all didn't listen to me, right? Can I say y'all that I used to that, right? Is that, okay, all right. Sometimes it slips out. Never lived in the South, but I've always kind of wanted to talk like it. Um, it it's, it's, you know, you, you, they didn't listen to Moses. I mean, how many times did they try and stone him or replace him? Um, Moses says, you didn't listen to me, um, but you have to listen to him, right? Um, and here's God the Father himself giving that, that uh, kind of sign of approval right, on Jesus at those two key moments in his ministry. So, all right, good. Uh, moving ahead, 1000 BC, now we're up to David. Um, Second Samuel chapter 
person. The prophet Nathan, you remember Nathan? Um, I, I, oh, yeah, sorry, Mitzi. Yeah, um, it's a good question. We, we, we get the impression that people heard something, right? There, there seems to be kind of this impression that there was a noise. Um, I'm trying to think exactly if there was, I, I don't think, and, and here's kind of the, um, my take on it. I don't think that was as much for the people as it was for Jesus himself, right? That, that confirmation of support from his father. Now, again, there's, there's part of it, we look at that and go, yeah, but Jesus is God, right? Why did he need that confirmation? He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was there to do, but it's, well, it's, it's what we're gonna talk about at the end of this lesson, right? The, the two natures of Christ, that he's true God and true man, who's tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Um, and so, right, how, how, how mightily the, the devil attacked him. Um, you know, you're, you're all on your own. The father doesn't care about you. Um, I, I just wonder what those temptations were like. And so I think that confirmation is as much for Jesus as it is for anyone else. The, the benefit of it really now comes when we, we have the scriptures in front of us, right, recorded and preserved. And here are the words, you and I get to hear them right? You and I get to hear that confirmation and know that the Father speaks this. Um, but I'd have, to, I'd have to go back and take a look specifically to see if, I don't remember there being a reaction where somebody says, well, that's really strange, right? Um, I just heard the clouds say that this is their son. I don't, there, was, there isn't anything like that, right, from my recollection. Um, sure, sure, yeah. Does anybody know? I don't think, I don't think that there is a, there's, there's, there's that almost like thunder, right? Where there's a noise, but we can't really hear it, right? Um, yeah, so it's a good point. Yeah, I, and I think it's part of it again is kind of this confirmation too, that this is the one that was long prophet, uh, promised, right? By Moses too, so good question. Um, Second Samuel chapter seven. Um, you, remember the, you remember the prophet Nathan, right? Um, I think one of the greatest preachers um, in the Bible. I, I just, you know, I, the sermon that he gives to David after, uh, you know, David commits adultery and impregnates Bathsheba and then has Uriah killed. And then Nathan comes and tells that story about, you know, the rich man who, you know, uh, stole the one sheep of the poor man in town and used it to throw a feast for his company that was coming to visit and David is enraged and says this man must die and the greatest shortest sermon I think in the Old Testament you are the man right um and um man right right between the eyes talk about a, a sermon kind of hitting you um so this is Nathan right the the prophet that the Lord sent to, to King David here is one that's not kind of the, the dire news um, he says this, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and your rest and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Um, the verses of the prophecy, right-hand column there, uh, talk about David's descendants, his sons and grandsons, etc., who would rule over Israel and his one great future descendant, Jesus. The verses selected here speak specifically about Jesus, namely that he would what? Now you have to remember, as you're thinking about that answer, what was the one thing that David wanted to do for the Lord? The one thing he wanted to do before he died. He wanted to build a temple. That's all he wanted to do. Lord, just let me build your house. Just let me build a temple. And the Lord says, here's his reply. I'm going to build a house for you. You're so focused on building a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. Um, and in fact, it's going to be your descendant who is going to, to build my house. Now, there's a couple, there's, this happens a, a number of times in the Old Testament. We've got a couple of different kinds of prophecies, right? There's, when it comes to the fulfillment of a prophecy, there's what we call the uh, an immediate fulfillment of a prophecy. And then there's like the ultimate fulfillment. Um, and the immediate fulfillment of this will be Solomon, David's son, will build Solomon's temple, right? But um, the, Lord, or the, the Lord also goes on to say that your descendant is going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. Uh, the Davidic line of kings didn't last very long past Solomon. So that can't be the ultimate fulfillment, right? There has to be something else. And we know what that is, right? Um, so Joseph got up from Nazareth, went down to uh, uh, Bethlehem in Judea. Why? Because he belonged to the house and line of David, right? Um, and we're going we're gonna to see the prophecy of Bethlehem coming up. But here is the connection. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what do people say? Hosanna, son of David. Not son of God, but son of David, right? It's the fulfillment of this prophecy. They see that in Jesus. Now, that's going to drastically change in, in less than a week. Um, when, they, when they go from saying, um, Hosanna, Lord, save us, to, to crucify him. But, but in that moment, this is the, the fulfillment. They see this playing out in Jesus, right? Um, so, so this is what we see. Here's a, here's a prophecy of Jesus. Not only would he be like a prophet, but he's also going to be like a, a king, right? Establishing this house, this throne, this kingdom of God forever and ever. Um, and there's numerous New Testament passages that talk about that, right? Jesus himself will, will say, my, my kingdom is not of this world. You can't say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God kingdom that Jesus has come to establish is within you. All right, 1000 BC, sticking with David, Psalm 22. Now we're getting really specific. Um, Psalm 22, a couple of verses from it say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. None of that happened to David. Um, nobody cast lots for David's clothing. Um, I, I don't know of anybody who, who mocked David, the most powerful man in the world, 
like that while he was king? What is he talking about? This is one of a, a number of what we call messianic psalms. The point and purpose of this psalm is not to teach us about David, but to teach us about the Messiah. Um, and we'll look at this in our next lesson when we go through the, the passion of Jesus. Um, you know, they're, they're, the, the numbers range, um, but, but anywhere between 300 to 500 Old Testament prophecies Jesus fulfilled, right? Um, and, and this is kind of one of those, those more glaring ones where Jesus speaks the words verbatim from the cross, right? This is one of the seven words um, that one of the seven mini sermons that Jesus preaches from his cross. And it's one of the, the few we have in the New Testament that's actually re recorded in, um, you know, the, the, the original language, right? Um, it's, it's, it's written there, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? Um, a very stark, memorable phrase that Jesus had. So the psalm written by King David predicted what? Uh, that, that, that this Messiah would be forsaken, that he would suffer, that he would be persecuted, um, that he would be mocked and ridiculed by people. Um, all, all of those things happened to Jesus, right? But Psalm 16 also says this, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Easter Sunday is prophesied in the Old Testament, right? It's there. Um, and not only would Jesus rise, but this idea that his body is not even going to see decay, it's going to happen pretty quickly after he dies because the body starts to decay um, pretty rapidly. So um, another example from Psalm 16. A couple more to look at. Moving ahead now, Isaiah uh, Isaiah chapter 7, so now we're 700 BC, so we're in between the time, those last two dates, um, I, asked, uh, I asked you to remember 722 and 586 BC, the fall of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Isaiah is kind of the bridge between the two, and if you, the, the, the book of Isaiah, you're going to see it, we're going to have a number of passages from there, um, Isaiah is sometimes referred to as being the fifth gospel, because it talks so much about Jesus, right? Um, it tells us, you know, where he would be born, that he would be born of a virgin, how, uh, you know, his passion, his suffering and death and his resurrection is all talked about and prophesied in Isaiah. And, and Isaiah is a really interesting book because Isaiah, he talks about um, the fall of the southern kingdom like it has already happened to the people in Judah like 150 years before it actually happens, 100 plus years, 125 years before it actually happens. So it's kind of a challenging book to read because he refers to and talks about how, you know, Jerusalem has fallen and, and things like that. And you're like, well, no, that hasn't happened. And then he even starts talking about them being brought back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem before it ever happened. So it's kind of a challenging book, but it's a worthwhile one um, to spend a, a lot of time in. And here's kind of one of the first passages that we see. Um, this is the, the challenge, right? Um, where the Lord says, uh, ask, ask for me to give you a sign. Um, and it's kind of one of those examples, I think a lot of people do this, right? They say, God, give me a sign. God, just give me a sign. People are always asking God, right, uh, to give them a sign. And I, and I kind of say, well, some of the signs in the Bible, I'm not so sure that you want, right? Um, and so here's the one, right? Here's one. Um, this will be a sign to you, right? The virgin will be with child 
and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Um, I don't know if I should bring this up or not, but um, you, you no doubt are aware, obviously, of the, the Supreme Court decision uh, last week um, for the, the pro-life movement, right? Um, and uh, a lot of friends and, and people that I know and acquaintances that I'm, I'm with on social media, um, obviously friends as you probably do too, all over the spectrum on that, people who are celebrating, people who are angry. Um, and one of, my, one of my friends, one of the first guys I met when we moved here, um, posted uh, something that said, he stole it from somebody else, but he posted something that said, you know, it's, it's strange to me how um, the solution to the pro-life or to not have an abortion that these you know, right-wing religious people have is that, um, you know, for women just to not have sex and yet their whole religion is predicated on the fact that a woman had a child without having sex. And, you know, it's like, do I want to go down this rabbit hole today? Um, uh, not today, maybe tomorrow. But, but it, you know, my answer to that would just simply be like, yeah, that's why it's such a big deal. Because it doesn't happen, right? Uh, we're, we're not saying, look, uh, you know, if you don't want to have kids, don't have sex. It's probably a 50-50 shot that you won't have kids. Um, because, you know, we, we have, you know, faith in, in, in uh, this miraculous birth in the Bible. We know it, it, it's possible. It happens. No, we know it doesn't happen. That's why we worship this guy. That's why we're, we name ourselves after him. That's why we call ourselves Christians, because this is a big deal. What a terrible argument. Anyway, I, I probably shouldn't have brought it up. But it just, you know, um, anyway, here it is, right? This is going to be a unique birth. And we're going to talk about, actually, in our next lesson, why this is actually necessary, the virgin birth. The virgin birth is not just something that, like, makes the story of Jesus better. It's not just something that kind of makes it unique and memorable. Sure, it does those things, but it is absolutely necessary if Jesus is going to be Jesus and do what Jesus can do, right? He cannot be born in a natural way because of what we've talked about in a couple lessons already, this thing that the Bible talks about called original or natural or inherited sin, that I pass my sin on to my children. Um, and so if Mary and Joseph come together and they have a boy in a natural way, that's Jesus' problem now. Now he can't be the Savior, right? So it, it, it has to be this kind of miraculous um, brought about by the Holy Spirit birth. But this is going to be a memorable thing. And I saw an interview a number of years ago um, between a, a Christian and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a Jewish rabbi. And the Jewish rabbi was kind of arguing against Jesus. And he's going on and on and on with all the examples of, he, you know how many people over the last 2,000 years have claimed to be the Christ? And he starts naming off all of these people um, and just, you know, going down the list. I, I'd be honest, I hadn't heard of any of them. I'm like, I didn't even know this was happening. People are doing this, but apparently they do. Um, and the Christian is sitting there and he goes, how many of those were, were born of a virgin? And how many of them prophesied their own death and then actually came back to life? And, and if, you, if any of those fit that bill, then, then we can keep talking. But if not... We're not talking about the same people here, right? This is apples to oranges. Um, so this is, right, this is, this is a big deal. 
All right, um, Isaiah 53. I, yeah, I mean, uh, this is just probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. We could spend all night talking about it, but you go through um, and, and hear these words, right? And, and listen to, I love the fact that Isaiah writes them in the past tense. This is 700 years before any of these things will actually happen. But because God makes a promise, it's as good as done. And so Isaiah can talk about it like it's already happened, right? Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Um, Right-hand column. Isaiah 52, um, 13 through 53 contains an amazingly accurate portrait of the Savior's, Savior's sufferings. Jesus would suffer and die in order to what? Save us. Save us. Yeah, right? I mean, it's, it's so cool how every one of those passages just goes, here's what Jesus suffered. Here's what you get. Here's what Jesus endured. Here's what you're rewarded with. Um, here's the punishment that Jesus is take, takes upon himself. Here's the peace that you are given, right? I mean, it's such an unfair exchange that Jesus does, right? Um, how, how awesome it is. Um, after his suffering, the Lord would, verse 11, um, see the light of life, right? Another reference to, to the resurrection. Um, all right, turn the page. Two more. Sticking there with Isaiah, um, Isaiah 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, so this is where we get the name of our church from, um, this passage here. Um, the Savior would be What? A child. A child, yeah. You kind of like just kind of breeze over that. It's so obvious, right? Um, the, the Savior would come as a child. Um, and, and what's interesting, I think, when you, you think about that, um, this is another thing that a lot of people who kind of, you know, reject Jesus as the Messiah, it's one of the things that they wrestle with um, when they say, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, um, it's, it's such a humiliating thing to picture him coming to the earth in this lowly way, being confined in the, the womb of a woman and being born into the world just like everybody else. Um, and it's like, yeah, that's kind of the point. That's the, 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 the beautiful humility of Jesus, right? That he doesn't come down descending from the heavens on a, you know, on a chariot of clouds with you know, fire behind him and lightning crashing around, um, you know, uh, that will be closer to what it looks like when he comes back the second time, but not this time, right? Uh, he comes in this lowly way. The Savior would be called, you think of those names, right? Um, and we, we kind of have a, a connection there to really the Trinity, right? The wonderful counselor kind of brings to mind also the Holy Spirit, obviously everlasting father, um, mighty God, prince of peace. All of these names tell us something about Jesus um, and, and the work that he will accomplish. Last one, 
Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This verse from the prophet Micah tells us about the Savior's earthly origins, specifically that he would be born in Bethlehem. And, and what's amazing is, again, um, when the, the magi, the wise men, come from the east, right, they follow the star, and it leads them to, to Jerusalem, of course. Where else would you look for the king of the Jews but the capital city? And so there they find Herod. And when they ask Herod, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? What does he do? He gathers up his Old Testament scholars. They didn't call them Old Testament scholars, but well, that's what we would call them. He calls in his Old Testament scholars and he says, that this newborn king of the Jews, where is he going to be born? And they immediately know. They say, Bethlehem. They know this. They know this is who it's talking about. Right? And yet not a single one of them. You get these guys who've traveled thousands of miles. They come asking you this question. You give them the answer. And, and the most they can do is Herod saying, you know what? Just come back and tell me. Right? If you find anything, come back and let me know. I mean, this is what they've been waiting for, supposedly. Um, so, yeah. So we, we kind of see a lot of glimpses like that. Um, I, any thoughts or questions on... Oh, changes. <laughs> thoughts or questions on any of those like i said just it's a very quick very brief uh, scan of the old testament with the purpose of kind of just again putting the focus and the highlight um on jesus any any thoughts or questions all right i think we can get through one more section then tonight the three offices of jesus um prophet priest and king now, when we say that, the, that Jesus holds these three offices of prophet, priest, and king, we don't mean that Jesus is just another prophet, that he's just another priest, that he's just another king. Um, I, the first uh, about 10 years of my ministry, I was a pastor in Salt Lake City, um, and this is kind of one of those conversations that I got into a lot with people um, who, who lived in Salt Lake City, the predominant religion there. This idea that Jesus was uh, another prophet, a great prophet, right? Um, when we say that Jesus is a prophet, what we mean to say is that the whole rhyme and reason, the whole purpose for establishing the Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king was to point ahead to the work of Christ, right? So that when Jesus comes, we don't have any more prophets. We don't have any more priests. We don't have any more kings like this, right? Um, Jesus perfectly fulfills this role for us, okay? Um, and so let's look at each of them. Jesus as prophet. We, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, in the Old Testament, the prophet's responsibility was to proclaim God's word to the people. How does the following verse describe Jesus' work as our prophet? Um, oh, my battery's about to die. Um, talk amongst yourselves, right? And it's an old computer, so when it says that, it is on the clock. Made it. All right. Okay, good. All right, where are we? Oh, this is going to take me long for my breath back. Um, Luke chapter 8, verse 1. How does this describe? Um, I can't even see it on the screen. Uh, but you have it there in your notes. After this, Jesus traveled 
uh, about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus came as a preacher. But, but, but here, I think, is kind of one of the subtle but beautiful differences between Jesus as a preacher and the Old Testament prophets. And I have it there um, in the, the words. You look at the, the Old Testament, and every time God's prophet spoke, he either had to begin or end what he said with something like, thus saith the Lord. This is not my word. I'm just telling you what God said, right? This is not this, you know, the word of the Lord came to, right? Um, the, the Lord put his word in my mouth. I came to speak the word, whatever it was, they made it very clear. I'm not the Lord, but I'm speaking to you his word. And then Jesus comes along and he doesn't talk like that anymore. He doesn't say, I, I just came to bring you the word of God. I'm just the messenger, right? What does Jesus say? Um, I, 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 I like uh, the, the King James version when it comes to this phrase. Maybe you'll remember this, right? Verily, verily, I say unto you. Um, and in the NIV now, it says, I tell you the truth, which is a much better way of saying it in English. Um, but it, it's, it's one of those phrases where when Jesus says that, Notice the stark difference that Jesus doesn't have to preclude what he says by saying, I'm just the messenger. This is just what God sent me to say. No, Jesus says, I am speaking to you my word, right? Um, I tell you the truth. And that word, um, uh, verily, verily in the Greek is actually the word amen. So literally what Jesus says is, amen, amen, I say to you. Um, and there are some translations that translate it that way, which is neat, but again, it makes no sense. Um, but I, I think it's, it's nice when you kind of recognize uh, some of those words. So, so there's a difference, right, between Jesus and the Old Testament prophet. Hebrews chapter 7, um, you think about the Old Testament priest's responsibility, really two things. Number one. It was to kind of be that mediator, that intercessor between God and his people. Um, and so he would do that in uh, offering up prayers and then also making sacrifices, right? Um, so take a look at Hebrews chapter 7 to see the difference. Therefore, he, talking about Jesus, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That isn't just another priest, right? That is the end of all priests. That is the end of all mediators. That is the end of all sacrifices, right? Um, so Jesus as our high priest. Then finally, Jesus as our king. Um, kings and other rulers govern the nations they serve for the common good of their people. They also defend their nation against outside threats by going to war and defeating an enemy that threatens them. How do the following verses describe Jesus as our king? And you remember, this is really one of David's big pitfalls. Why why um, did David get into the trouble that he did with Bathsheba? Remember how all of that began? 
um, in, 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 in the, um, the, the Bible there, it says, um, it was, what is it, like the springtime? The, the spring came when all of the kings took their armies out to war. But not David. He stayed home. And look what happened. He failed in his vocation right from the get-go, right? Um, and and, and kind of here's, what, here's what, 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 what ended up. So, but this is what kings are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to, 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 to defend their people, to, to take care of them. Um, and, and so how do we see Jesus fulfilling that? 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, it's, it's like the, um, the, the basketball team where everybody's fouled out for one player. And that one player somehow wins the game. And there you sit on a bench having contributed nothing. And yet, what do you get? You get a trophy. And this isn't just a participation trophy. This is the real deal, right? You are the champion. Why? Because your king, your victor won the victory and he gave it to you. That's what Jesus has done. Luke 17, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you, right? So where is the place that Jesus rules? He doesn't rule over there. He doesn't rule inside this church. He rules in the hearts of believers, right? This is where he reigns. This is his kingdom. Um, so yeah, uh, I, just kind of interesting, I think, just to go through those. And there's such an Old Testament connection to each of those offices. I um, thought that was kind of just a valuable thing to run through. Um, we're going to stop there because um, the next section will take a little bit longer. And uh, we, we do our best to start, stop at 8 o'clock. So um, this has been good. Um, so we'll pick up uh, no class next week. I'm going to be out of town. Um, so we got a week off. So enjoy the, the week of the fourth. Um, so, so everybody online, just a heads up to you. Um, and uh, other than that, we look forward to seeing you on Sunday or the 13th, I think, of July will be our next one. So, all right, everybody have a good night. Thank you.